Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. I'm a professional action sports athlete and a thoughtful podcaster, <laughs> self-described. But welcome back. If you're new here, welcome. Today I have a very exciting episode for you. And I just got off with Skylar Brown. And she and I had just the most amazing talk that I am just gushing, blissing, buzzing after. It's so nice when you really like connect with somebody and you just get to jam. So fun. Feels so good to be seen and heard and it's super fun to play. So Skylar is a... I don't know, I've kind of been describing her as an embodiment coach, but definitely an expert on embodiment and seemingly quite an embodied person herself, which I really, really appreciate. In this episode, I got schooled on what embodiment really is, and we refer to the talk that we both were at with our friend Benita Roy. That's incredible. I'm actually going to do my best. I'm going to write it down right now that I'm going to link Bonita's Stoa talk in the description of this podcast. Bonita. And Bonita's going to be on this podcast here. At some point, she's a very busy woman, but she's amazing galaxy brain. I'm so excited to have her on. But um, at any rate, Skylar and I talk about what embodiment really is. We talk about how embodiment plays into the meta crisis a.k.a. how disembodied, how when we're disembodied, we fuck up the world, socially, environmentally. Yes. Whoa. It's crazy. Uh, we also talk about embodiment in parenting and relationships, how embodiment relates to intimacy. And we also talk about how embodiment is the most fucking punk rock thing you can do right now which is awesome because it makes Skylar, who is just a beautiful, petite woman, punk rock as fuck. <laughs> so if you like this podcast, please share it around and consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's the most helpful thing you can do. That's patreon.com slash in the air. Thanks to everyone who supports this show. It is 100% listener funded which is something I'm very proud of, and I feel deeply called to keep it that way. I've had sponsors reach out to me and said no, because I'm trying to keep this thing listener-sponsored. This is your guys' show. I make it for you. So I take your support. Thank you so much. Without further ado, here's a little music that I find fitting for the talk and my talk with my new friend, Skylar Brown. Enjoy.
Uh, thanks for being here with me. It is my pleasure, Ari. Okay, so we both had our heads blown open by Benita Roy the other day. This is not <laughs> this is not the first podcast that I've recorded since then that I've just been talking about Benita Roy. So if you're listening to this, just stop what you're doing and uh, just look up Benita Roy and definitely try to take in some of her wisdom. It's highly recommended. Be very by... careful though, because it will blow <laughs> up in your head. Yeah, be careful. Everything you thought you were sure of in the world will yes. be, the rug will be pulled out yes. from under. And also stoke your excitement because she's going to be on the podcast if uh, if it's my last dying wish. So the thing that was so informative or one of the things that was so informative in my talk with Benita that's most relevant to our conversation here today is what embodiment actually is. Mm. I have, like any good new age millennial, been using this word fervently for quite some time. But, and not that I've been misusing it, but I think that Benita gave me a deeper understanding of what it actually is. Mm. And so to just draw this out a little bit, I think that in the past I've used embodiment as the idea almost synonymous with alignment that if you have values and virtues that are enacted through your behavior mm -hmm. consistently over time, mm -hmm. that is the sign of embodiment. Interesting. See, that's more like, for me, that's more like integrity. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes, mm -hmm. I agree. And so what Bonita did was she kind of knocked that definition into what I, uh, into something else. And the way that I understood Benita describing it was that embodiment is actually integrating your body and your natural human, animal, biotic nature and so it's just incredibly serendipitous and timely that i would have you here today to <laughs> help me and us understand what embodiment is what we mm. get from it mm. and how to walk towards it mm. So let's start with what it is. And I would also love to hear if, if that talk with Benita, how she described embodiment was, did that hit the nail on the head for you? Or did that challenge your understanding of this? I, I, and also maybe we should preface this with you kind of introducing yourself and the type of work that you do. Sure. Okay. There's a lot there. Um, so Bonnie is uh, a mentor and a friend and definitely a teacher of embodiment for me. Um, and I've had the, um, I guess it's just been the pleasure and the privilege of spending time with her at her farm. So I've worked with Bonnie with her horses and to, that's just an, a profound experience. And 
um, the horses are really the teachers of embodiment. And I think that's the thing that Bonnie is constantly bringing through and uh, is this trans species or interspecies conversation that she was, she was talking about that the other day, that we can't really have perspective on what it is to be human without expanding mm -hmm. the dialogue, without including other species in the dialogue. And so, Interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I had this notion of embodiment from um, my decades of experience as a yogi yogini um and it's a it's a it's like an archetype and a, a role that i take very seriously it's the one that really best describes like how i am you know what who i am how i am why i am really and um is yogini and, yeah okay yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm pr i'm proudly i have proudly stepped into that um, descriptor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, so embodiment for me for a very long time just meant, um, well, let's, let's just say this, that there have been deepening, like there's a deepening process that, that has, um, has been my experience of becoming more and more embodied. Now, Bonnie will say, and I think this is important to start with this. She's like, everybody's embodied. Why are we talking about embodiment all the time? Like we're all embodied. We are spirit embodied. And those are my words, not Bonnie's, but that's how I feel it. Um, and I loved it when she sort of, like it sort of brought some humility to the whole conversation when she began to talk about it that way with me. And I really have integrated that like it's so true we're all always embodied and so then it's interesting and and like what i like to think about from there is what we do with that mm. right and how mm. it's different for you like how your experience of embodiment is different than mine mm. and in that sense that we're all embodied all the time i almost hear it or i interpret it like we are as you said we are spirit in bodies like we mm -hmm. are physically here all the time mm -hmm. yeah as long as we're alive <laughs> we are. So there's like a so that's kind of like i'm kind of like marking that as like baseline embodiment yeah baseline embodiment is there's nowhere to get to Mm -hmm. You know, it's the classic thing. It's like enlightenment, you know, as long as we're putting it some like out there, it's something that I need to get to, mm -hmm. then we're already putting a distance uh -huh. between us and the things. So I like starting with this idea and, and the truth that we are already embodied. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we can begin to look at, oh, wow, well, why am I numb sometimes? You know, why don't I feel anything? Why can't I feel my body? And that's, that is really the driving question for me. And it has been for a long, long time because mm. I am a yogini, but I had a long career in the corporate world. And what was happening for me towards the end of my career in the corporate world is that I was becoming more awake in my body and in my embodied experience and having, and I can talk more about what this means, um, 
and would love to talk more about what it means, but I was having this experience of a full body awakening mm -hmm. to experience to my reality, but sitting in rooms, you know, mm -hmm. constantly with a lot of people and, and within a culture, let's say the culture of business that not only is it unconscious, it's like, it, it's beyond disembodied because it almost thrives on that disembodiment. Like the minute you bring the body into business, everything goes off track. It's like all haywire. It sort of exists in this disembodied. It thrives on the disembodiment of, of humans. And, um, and so, yeah. And, and what I mean by disembodiment then is like, um, dissociation, transcending the embodied experience, you know, sort of like ejecting out of the body into these conceptual or abstracted spaces. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's very pleasant. The body can be a really dark and painful place to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I sometimes say like I started doing trauma work and, I, and that's what I do with people mostly. Um, I still haven't described what I do, but a lot of one-on-one -on -one work and small group work around trauma and healing trauma and somatic work. Like I do this because it's like the excavation of the trauma from the body and out of the channels, the energetic channels of the body. And it's like the minute you start doing that work, you realize why people don't do it. Mm. It's like, oh, <laughs> like I arrived to this conversation. You asked me where I've been or how I have been. And and I said, well, I was in a two hour session with my, one of my mentors and teachers, and I just got gutted. Mm. Um, and it's really, it's great because then you become this like funny glutton for punishment where it's like, I love this feeling. Yeah. So as I, as I kind of hear it described here, the fact that we are spirit in bodies is baseline that we are all embodied all the time. And then there is the deepening and the awakening to the experience of what it is to be in this body at any given time. And so I guess that just kind of, for me, that's how I'm understanding the beginning, which is birth, conception, birth, spirit in body. And then the path is awakening to the experience of being in a body and being alive. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I would add, or yeah, I would add the, I like this term subtle competency, like the mm. subtle competencies. So that awareness that you're talking about, like, so I'm in the body, I'm of the body, the body, maybe, you know, it's almost like the body and I think Bonnie is trying to bring this forward too. It's like the body is this fathomless treasure trove of primordial wisdom, mm -hmm. right? We rarely give it that credit, mm -hmm. but wow, you know, mm -hmm. it is like, I love in her diagram that she, like the body is kind of in the down trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it matters. I think the trajectory is like holographic, but or the diagram is, but um, it makes sense because there's this like rooting, you know, this earth, this earthy quality, this earthiness to mm. 
the body. Mm. And it's almost like if you came out the other side of the earth, you'd be where in the cosmos. Yeah. I just got goosebumps. As you said that the earth, the earth connection to our bodies is, is feels incredibly true. Oh, ma. <laughs> mm. Okay. So I want to zoom in on another piece here that you kind of referred to. And as I heard it, it was essentially that we are born into bodies, but there are things that happen. There are traumas that take place that our, there are traumas that take place that keep us from feeling our bodies, that make us want to dissociate, that make us feel unsafe in our bodies. And through myriad strategies of dissociation, of daydreaming, of um, drugs and alcohol, of all kinds of different things, we want to numb ourselves to the experience of being in these bodies. And maybe not want to, but there's some kind of psychological strategy that tries to protect us or tries to cope that mm. takes us out of this awakened, embodied state. The work that you're describing of bringing the mm. awareness back into our bodies and living in our bodies, you describe it as very painful, very difficult. And once you start doing it, it's very obvious why people avoid it. Yeah, but I don't want to leave it there because there's also something very ecstatic mm -hmm. about it and liberating. <laughs> you know, that's why we do it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's so much I could say, but I, was there, what was the question there? Or you're just mm -hmm. pondering feeling no i, I, I was feeling it was incredible actually as i said that i had like my own ripe trauma my own like bodily desire to like be free and like flowing and unencumbered yeah. came up i was just like oh it was like right here oh that's Ugh. good mm -hmm. yeah. wow it's funny because maybe that just occurs to me it's like that you podcast that there's something here that you're hosting these conversations, like just to move. That's that exactly that. It is exactly <laughs> that. It is literally my, it's the most transformative project I've ever undertaken. Mm. And to be in in-depth and lengthy, intimate conversations with people like yourself is an incredibly healing and transformative process. To be able to talk to John Verveke and mm -hmm. Zach Stein and Jordan mm -hmm. Hall mm -hmm. and like to bring myself vulnerably, intimately, and honestly to the conversation, seeking transformation, seeking healing, seeking understanding and wisdom and knowledge is. Um, Takes courage. It sure does. But you saw the website. I have that in droves. <laughs> You know, I'm having this funny um, insight mm -hmm. that uh, we were talking briefly about public intellectuals, uh -huh. right? And you use the term public intellectuals. And I was just sitting here thinking, wow, I think I'm a public feeler. 
Uh-huh. And I would say maybe you're the maybe you're somewhere there in there too, Ari. Yes. But I that's really what I do ultimately is feel publicly. Mm. Talk about feeling, demonstrate feeling, teach feeling, uh, expose my own feelings very vulnerably. Mm. Like just live and and exhibit and and exist as um that feeling state publicly. Okay. So help me understand that what I hear is essentially that feeling begets feeling, mm. that people don't know how, and they don't see people doing it often. So how is that? How is it that feeling begets feeling? Mm. Um, I mean, there are a few things to say about that. One is that um, it's nice to to understand or helpful to understand that the nervous systems, like our nervous systems are communicating. Mm -hmm. Like our bodies are in communication with other bodies. Mm -hmm. Like almost it's like the head or the, the mind, which is also a little bit problematic, the mind body split. Um, Like for example, in the Tibetan tradition, the mind is at the heart. So already you mm-hmm. don't have this bifurcation where mm-hmm. we have everything above the neck, you know, as one uh, sphere of consciousness. And then everything below, you know, can be completely void or, or not felt like I was talking about before in like a corporate setting, a, lot, a bunch of talking heads like David Byrne had it right. Right. The talking heads. So um, anyway, so our bodies are communicating. Uh, and I'm feeling whether I'm aware of it or not, I can feel you. There are, there's a lot of information your body is sharing with me. A lot of information that the emotional body, your emotional body is sharing with me. Like I'm getting all kinds of yeah information and information is just flow. It's life, right? It's that things are flowing between us. Um, and so I mean, I think so on the, on the, on the, like on the, the physiological level, feeling begets feeling because we can come into a deeper state of awareness. We can verbalize, we can express what we're feeling. We can use communication to sort of navigate what we're feeling in the bodies or my body can just respond to yours. Like there's, there's a whole level of communication that we can um, both feel more or all, let's say whoever's listening, like we can all just begin to feel more by becoming aware of feelings. This is Um, what you're referring to as a subtle competency. Yes. It is very subtle. It's extremely subtle. And I'd love to get into that. Um, The other thing I want to say though, is that feeling begets feeling like the public feeler, the job of the public feelers. Mm -hmm. And we're not alone. There are a lot of them out there a lot of times artists or musicians or, you know, like, uh, yeah, people who actors, actors are like athletes of the emotions. Um, but I've, I've known for a long time that a lot of what I was doing was normalizing feeling publicly. Um, like one of the problems we have, like, so I was in the corporate world, I was an advertising executive, and I was beginning to explore, or it was calling me this, the divine feminine, 
the, um, I don't even call it the feminine anymore, but these energies that have been suppressed in the culture for a long time were awakening in me. And I, all I could see was how disinvited, how unwelcome they were mm -hmm. at the table. And it was, it's like it, it became my mission I mean, for better or worse. Cause I ended up like, it was actually a little bit hurtful to me. I had to self-sacrifice a little but I just began to exhibit and, and, and show and be authentically in my emotional experience, in my felt experience, even in those kinds of environments. And before I could do it skillfully, it was very disruptive. It was like maybe sometimes alarming, you know, but all, often misunderstood. But the more I did it and the more skillful I got at it, the more I had experiences where my ability to be with hard, difficult emotions was an invitation for others to be in that space mm -hmm. too. And it was like, oh, human, right? Like, oh, thank you so much. Like we weren't, you know, here we are making these enormous decisions that will impact people and planet. And we are not feeling them. We're not feeling them. So I just saw, and, and it really was related to climate. I was uh, like my, my first real awareness of the urgency of the situation around being embodied and feeling was that I was sitting in all of these boardrooms and I was working with people who had a lot of power and influence and they were not feeling the effects of their actions. It was completely intellectualized and dissociated and the grief and the overwhelm, the existential terror, like all of these emotions that if we allowed ourselves to feel that we wouldn't be doing the things we were doing. I was like, oh my God, people, this has to stop. Like this is, so I think like that was where the yogi was like, all right, this is way off the mat. Like, this is actually an imperative. This is a cultural imperative. Like this is, um, it's just urgently important. Wow. That is a very uh, eloquently put and what it makes me think is I feel like something just clicked for me, some kind of alignment where I can understand a piece of the meta crisis, mm. a piece of the meta crisis as disembodiment. That oh my God. Only yes. That only by dissociating with our natural selves, our feet and our own earthiness, only through disassociating can we continue to do what we've done and to roll that back it seems like that's an enormous task once we acknowledge that we have habitually had to disassociate from our indigenous and earthy selves for 10,000 years mm -hmm. through agriculture and industrialization yeah, wow. there's a so, lot of generational trauma. So to think that embodiment and feeling your feelings and be, 
becoming subtly aware of the emotions that arise in your body and the signals and the the things, the feelings that come mm. up in your body to be unaware of those or I guess to become aware of those is not just a very girly woo-woo thing. It is actually a path towards a realignment with our reality. Yeah. Yeah. Now I could say nature, but I think it's even bigger than nature. It's actually reality. It's objective reality there. Hmm. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And there's something that <clears throat> relaxes in me that feels deeply received and seen and felt when you say that disembodiment is part of the meta crisis mm -hmm. <laughs> because i feel like it's it's beginning the awareness is beginning to dawn but it has sort of been a little bit like oh we'll put this over here like it's a nice to have mm -hmm. like it's, it's nice that you can feel other people it's nice to um, heal your trauma, but it's also not just a self-improvement project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not just a self-improvement project. It's a <laughs> existential demand. <laughs> I feel that way. <laughs> it's an existential <laughs> demand. That's so interesting. Mm, so beautiful. One of the things that I've, um, I um, had a very close friend who's a very embodied person and she used to refer to me as a shadow seer mm. and it seems like I can pick out the shadow before I can really understand what the right thing is I mean, my body yourself tells or in this situation or in others yeah um, I think in others first and I think that by developing that sense in others and the world and softening and to being able to see it for myself, the last two years has been a pretty painful um, turning of my shadow scene inward, mm -hmm. uh, which has been mm -hmm. an enormous opportunity for growth, but comes with a massive dose of reality and pain and mm. all of those reasons that you wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> Wandering but, in the woods. <laughs> yeah. So the mystic's journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. The I've seen so much in the world in the climate change discussion that you've just brought up. Mm. We can just focus on that for a second or to talk about feminism or to talk about race relations or to talk about any of these very hot topics that dominate our news feeds and control the outcry and are enacted through what I've referred to as outrage culture in general hmm. is I think that I have had a visceral negative response to things that are purely intellectual and aren't actually embodied. Mm. 
Is any example coming to mind? I'm just curious. Um, one of the examples that I brought to John Verveke and Zach Stein was during the time of Black Lives Matter, that there was just like this incredible like white shame and guilt and like finger pointing. And I was just like, I'm not exactly sure what we need to do, but I'm pretty sure that shame isn't the tool for the job. I just know for myself that like, if I am to transform, I need support and space and love and care and not shame and a stick. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I tried my best to steel man the argument and to understand the predicament and also pretty wholeheartedly reject the disembodied part of the rage. Um, I tried to steel man the rage itself and steel man the, the injustice without yeah. swallowing the, the mm. guilt, the shame, the finger pointing, the blame. It's funny because I don't feel the rage as disembodied. <clears throat> I mean, it's like... Mm. Mm. <clears throat> there is obviously feeling there, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about public feeling and there's a lot of feeling happening. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we're basically talking about, we're talking about many things at the same time, but trauma is what comes up for me and acting out or being reactive or being triggered like these, these um, uh, like there's a way that the anger is like anger is such a profound catalyst. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is one of the, you know, I have a Buddhist practice and background and there's an alchemy in Buddhism. And for me, there has like alchemy is just so central to this human, this natural world that we live in, this existence, like the transmuting or the transformation of pain into something or, or the, you know, um, something, the gross material into something more um, sublime, let's say. And so anger, the transformed aspect of anger is clarity, is clear vision, is mirror-like wisdom. Mm. And so, you know, and there's a transformed aspect of pride and there's a transformed aspect of jealousy and there's a transformed aspect of lust and seduction. And, you know, if we know how to work with these emotions, these very powerful, like they had, they hold a lot of energy, right? Like when you're angry, don't you feel a lot of energy moving? Mm -hmm. And so we can use that, like turning up the fire on the Bunsen burner, you know, we can, we can discharge it. We can just, you know, like a baby dragon, like really just damaging things like mm -hmm. left and right, just torching the place. Mm -hmm. Or we can put what needs to be transmuted, what needs to be transformed into the alchemical beaker use that anger to turn up the fire, the heat, and like really watch, like really investigate the process, like really pay attention to it. And then 
see what we get on the other side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another very subtle competency. <laughs> I know. I never know. It's so funny. You'll have to just like, keep me honest. And um, I'm just getting to know you. We're just meeting, but I'm already enjoying um, the way I'm, I bet, I bet your guests often feel this way. Like the way you'll, you're coming to meet me. Mm. You're like, I, I'm here. Like I'm, I'm going to meet you in what you're saying and we're going to make sense of it together because sometimes I don't have, I live in a very, very subtle world. Mm. Like since I was very young and it was very difficult and painful and, um, uh, isolating for me for a long time until I really understood what my gifts were and how to use them. Still understanding that, <laughs> but, um, I live in a very, very subtle world and I sometimes miss the mark or don't know when what I'm saying or talking about is too subtle to be understood. So help me there. <laughs> hey. What comes up for me there is that the only reason that a very subtly attuned child would experience that as painful is if they are in a completely gross, unaware society, family, relationship. The, I guess my intuition is that the metacrisis at large, especially in the embodied, in the part of it that is embodied, it is a, the requisite transformation is from very gross, very obvious, very powerful, very logical towards more subtle more, man, just subtle. The term subtle is hard to need another synonym for. It's just like, it needs to be more subtle. You need a quieter head so that you yeah. can hear the, mm -hmm. the, the, the quiet rumblings of your tummy. Yeah. I mean, anyone who has ever longed to, or tried to communicate with nature, mm -hmm. Right. Like, oh, I just want to talk to the trees. Like, oh, I wish I didn't knew what they were saying. Or, you know, sat, you know, if you've sat and um looked at the stars, like, you know, that this is like nature communicates sometimes not so subtly. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the wisdom is very subtle. And some mm -hmm. of the wisest people I have known in my life were people like my grandfather, I'm from Kentucky, and he was a farmer his whole life and taught farming to other farmers. And so, you know, he was just in such a deep relationship to the earth and the land. And um, there was a real subtlety in his relating with plants. And yeah, I think... Um, it's absolutely something we're missing. I do sense 
and I see a lot of, a lot of interest, like a lot of people very open to and excited about cultivating more subtle awareness, more subtle competencies. (laughs) And um, it's like almost like we pushed it so far in the direction of loud, complex, desensitized you know like over like if you walk into any supermarket Mm -hmm. hypermarket in the u.s like it's a shocking experience it is most people don't experience that no they don't but when you start to as it sounds like you've got this like i think you know it's like more people are coming back into a more subtle relationship with their environment including the people Mm -hmm we're in relationship with, right? right? Aren't your relationships getting more subtle? You know, there's an intimacy. That's another great word. And kind of a synonym for, for subtle and subtlety is, this, is intimacy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you start to live a life like that. And then like for me, uh, living on the farm or whatever, like I'll walk into the local, rarely, but I will walk into the local grocery store I'm like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> it's an assault. Mm-hmm, it is. Um, and so I think, you know, we went, we pushed it so far in that direction and, and it's still going, that train is still like, we're still like that, the, that train is still moving towards ever more, you know, like, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe help me out here. Like, um, or like, remember you're an athlete, like extreme, mm-hmm. <laughs> like everything's extreme. Mm-hmm. And partly, and not, I don't think in extreme sports, I think that's a different thing, but like, I'm thinking of like um, fragranced candles and music blaring too loudly in public spaces. And, you know, this like, you know, as a result of our dissociation and numbness, we've turned up the volume because we just can't feel, we can't Uh. hear, we can't smell anymore, right? Wow. The idea that when you lose your sensitivity, you have to turn up the volume. Mm. That's startlingly true. The shape of our world, as you describe it, and as we all experience it, or not all of us, as subtle and sensitive people experience the world, it is hyper-stimulating, extremely loud, blaring in its flavors, in its colors. And that is a difficult force to push back against in our lives because we habituate to it. Once your child eats candy, to be the person that takes candy away is to be the cop. It is to be the negative authority figure. It's very difficult. That's, uh, and you exempted extreme sports from that, but let me assure you. Okay. I didn't know enough about it to say, but it is not exempt. 
Okay. Extreme sports has become extreme for the same exact reason that we habituate, we habituate to a thrill and we must chase ever increasing levels of those reward center chemicals, that volume in our heads. We have to chase that volume. One of the niches that I've found and um, inhabited is to recommend that men who have found themselves on a similar path as me, that have found themselves in paragliding in particular, to take a very deep look at why you're doing it and what you get from it, because it can kill you. And to chase the volume all the time is soul sucking. Yeah. It is soul sucking. But I, you said something that I had to write down that you referred to communicating with nature. Mm. And I think that some people might think that you're like a tree hugger or wanting to talk to the trees. Talk to me. Oh, I heard the tree say this. No, no, no. To communicate is to commune. To commune mm. is to make things common, to share something between something. Mm. So to communicate with nature is, as you've described it today, a deep a deepening of your embodiment because it is to make common. It is to share things with the earth that you are a part of that you are from and will return to. That's a beautiful idea. And the thought of a farmer who would be deeply in communion with the earth is a energetic that I can imagine produces a food that would feed your body and your soul. It's also interesting because I have experienced this in ways that very few people have. Mm. Because most people think of the wind as just horizontal, and they don't actually realize that the wind, by its very nature, is deeply vertical. It has a depth component to it. The air goes up and the air goes down. And I take my paraglider and I fly it around and I find that air that goes up and I stay in the air that goes up and it takes me up and whisks me away into the sky and then I go. And then I find the next parcel of air that's rising and I stay in it. And then I just do that until the sun goes down and turns the power off on that whole system. Mm. It is, this is a crux. This is a choice point for us in my life. I can, as a paraglide pilot, I can use that communication with nature. That the, that literally that the tree's limbs blowing in the wind, with my experience, I look at that and I know that the air is rising there. So I fly to the trees that are blowing in the wind because the air is rising there. So it's a piece of information. I'm communing with nature. I have to, the best paraglide pilots, and these are things I teach on my YouTube channel. The best paraglide pilots are the keenest observers and can remove their judgment from the situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
the limbs of the trees blow. I know that the air is going up. I fly over there and the air is going up. Mm-hmm. And that right there is just the isness. Yeah. That's just, that just is. Action, reaction. That just yeah. is. Yeah. And so there's a choice point here where I can either use this time paragliding to chase ever louder, ever brighter, ever saltier, sweeter, sexier inputs into my nervous system, or I can use it as a time to commune with nature and myself and to be the keenest witness, the keenest observer of the atmosphere. The complexity of the atmosphere never ceases to blow my mind and the complexity of my ability to Hmm. make my paraglider into some kind of heuristic that I can kind of like sample Hmm. this fucking thing and make decisions based on the samples that I take in real time. It's incredible. So one of the things that I've talked about so much is that action sports in general have a deeply transformative power Hmm. that we often miss because we're constantly chasing the volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love this. I love learning from your experience. I'm just taking this in, this wind being vertical. I love that. I mean, it, it speaks to me. I'm, I'm drawing parallels to my experience of, like a, of the inner yogas and the subtle body and the winds within the system. I'm like, oh, wow. It's, it, it's, uh, it's just beautiful how the internal you know, mirrors or matches the external, like how you can learn these lessons, like literally in the wind, you know, literally in the atmosphere of the planet. Um, And we can learn them, you know, at the same time, like by going, like paragliding inside. Uh (laughs) And observing the wind. Yeah. Yeah. The the wind is like, they get hot and rise. I mean, everything you just described is like, kind of what I'm doing when I'm traveling inside, you know, I'm sitting still, and then I'm moving, like, like really feeling the updrafts, like feeling the movement of the winds through the channels and dancing, like uh, flying, like really on those, on those, um, wherever it wants to take me. Yeah. What did you say until the sun goes down? Yeah, until it stops powering that system. Okay, so I have drawn this illustration for many people. Okay. And I have talked about the power for transformation that paragliding can have, Mm -hmm. particularly for men who have maybe come to paragliding to chase the volume. I would love to hear your maybe recommendations. I assume that most everyone you talk to, most everyone that you guide or teach or work with to heal, has been saturated their entire lives in the volume world. Mm. 
Mm, I lost you for a second, Ari. Okay, so I think that I imagine that most people that you talk to. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Okay. I think we're back. Are you there? Mm-hmm. I'm here. Your connection seems to be improving. Okay. Where'd I lose you? Um, you were just beginning to draw the, <laughs> you, you were really drawing the picture. Okay. So I've tried to illuminate the reality that so many of us who come to paragliding have come to this because we're trying to chase the volume. We're trying mm-hmm. to keep turning up that knob of how it feels internally, as well as getting more and more external praise, accolade, affirmation, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. I imagine that the people that you work with, the people that you Mm. try to teach or guide or heal have all grown up in a world that is saturated in volume. Mm. So what is the process? Because my intuition is that we don't actually have to renounce this potentially rewarding thing like i don't need to stop paragliding to be able to commune with nature as i fly i don't have to abstain from ever going to the fluorescently lit supermarket to grow a subtle competency of being able to listen to the little signals that my body wants to tell me so what's the path like Mm -hmm to go from a saturated world where the volume is just at 11 all the time to growing this subtle awareness of the world around us and the world inside of us? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I agree. I think that's important to say that it doesn't mean we need to not have extreme experiences Mm -hmm. at all. Um, I lived in New York city 20 years, you know, until recently, I haven't always lived on a farm. I was living in the city until 2019 and love it. It's one of my favorite places to be, you know, New York city. It's like insane, loud, crowded, uh, volume turned up to 11. Um, I love to dance. I loved like a club experience. I'm very tantric. I love like really extreme experiences, but there's, you know, there's another word. Here's another word. There's a couple of things. One is there's a refined, there's a refinement Mm. that's possible through attention. Mm -hmm. And that is what you're talking about. It sounds like to me, when you're talking about bringing people who are maybe um, like chasing the endorphins or whatever, like it's more the the rush Mm -hmm. and you would know more about that than me, but um, like whatever it is they're chasing, you're sort of asking or inviting them to bring more awareness, more attention to the process. 
And that, that doesn't mean do less or don't go as high or don't be as extreme necessarily. There's just a calibration of my experience. Like I'm, I'm very clear what my system wants and what my system can handle at any moment and in relating. So, like I said, I love to dance. And, um, so like, uh, five rhythms practice, Gabrielle Roth's practice. This is such a beautiful practice for embodiment. And she called it a moving meditation. She started it at Esalen in the seventies. And now it's like ecstatic dance is, is sort of a version of it, but I, I, was lucky enough to be around when Gabrielle was still teaching and got to work with her. And, um, Mm. you know, there's a chaos. There are the five rhythms are the five rhythms of nature. So you have flowing staccato chaos, lyrical and stillness. So to be subtle doesn't mean we're always in stillness. Mm. It's just that you have a subtle relationship, even with chaos. Mm. Like that's, That's the real mastery is that whatever is arising, I am in such an intimate relating with it that I can like adjust my system. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm going to back off a little bit, or maybe I need a break, or maybe we can negotiate. Maybe you have more energy than me. And I just, maybe we can negotiate how we come together, you know, or maybe the moment is calling for me to just, like let go and go on some kind of crazy ride. And um, I think like, that's for me, it's like surfing, (laughs) another sport. (laughs) Maybe paragliding is the same way, but it really is like, whoa, okay, I feel the wave. Like the wave is rising right now. I guess I'm gonna be like, I'm like, it's it's wild. And um, so I don't have to be a monastic, nothing against monastics, but, I don't have to go sequester myself in a cave to develop these subtle sensibilities. I developed most of mine in New York city. And it was by relating to the intensity of every situation, like every subway car, every, you know, it's a trip to navigate that city and be hypersensitive. Um, but mystics have done it through the ages, you know, like we kind of move between like move through the spaces, like, all right. Okay. I feel what's going on here. Yeah. So what I hear is that as opposed to trying to turn the volume down in the world, Mm. the path is actually increasing your awareness of how you're receiving the sound. What the experience of being in the world feels like. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think that the one example popped up in my head as you described that, which was so often in paragliding, paragliding is very, it it can be very scary. Mm-hmm. And it takes a certain energy from me to paraglide. Like I have to, I kind of have to, like there's a, there's a window of tolerance here. There's a window of like the energy that I can have, but sometimes I'm out of that energy. I just don't have it that day. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm mostly okay with that at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. But I've experienced so many people who just didn't feel it, 
And so they went and landed, but then they, they, they shame themselves for that. They don't like that, that they, it's almost like they listened. They had a, a mm -hmm. subtle awareness of what was real for them and they listened to it, but it's, it's, um, it's almost like the conditioning that our families unfortunately instill in us, which is that our subtle awareness and our subtle feelings don't matter and need to be pushed down oh, yeah. to maintain harmony over awareness. Mm. Um, there's a lot there. I mean, absolutely. I agree, especially when it comes to things like intuitions, you know, like um, uh, intuition, that kind of like knowing that comes out of nowhere, or um, some, some say that the intuition comes from the heart's direct experience of reality. Like the heart has a knowing that is unmediated. It's a direct non-conceptual knowing mm -hmm. like when we see, three, see things through the heart. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just caught because I don't want to blame our parents, you know? I mean, I think like they were living in a trauma field. Mm -hmm. They had their own experience. You know, it's like these things like get perpetuated, you know, it's so much of it. It's unconscious. It's back to your shadow, like your ability to spot shadow, like so much of relating parent to child has been in the past in the shadow. I do sense that's another thing that's shifting that people are becoming much more conscious in their parenting and that's going to make like in one generation, like these kids you're talking about, the four-year-old you got ready for forest school today, like he's going to be a very different, like he's going to have a different life, different life experience and a different, will be a different kind of parent. You know, like we're, we're fixing things really quickly, generationally, I think. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I mean, one of the problems is that we have, or we were as children denied our actual experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I talk about, I have a 10 year old daughter and I talk, we talk about these things all the time and she's incredibly wise and extremely perceptive and sensitive, but you know, I'm always, I try to be very clear with what I'm like coherent. And that's another, you know, gift of embodiment. And one of the reasons embodiment is so important is that I have a knowing of what, like, I know moment to moment, what most of the time <laughs> I'm not perfect. Um, I, I have, I have some numb and blind spots in me and shadow, of course. So, but to the best of my ability, I try to be coherent with her about what I'm feeling and what I'm saying and how I'm relating to her so that she doesn't have the experience of intuiting or knowing that something is wrong, but everybody, all the adults are acting like everything's fine. Yeah, no, everything's good. We're good. Everything's fine. How are you good? You know, so never in our household. I mean, maybe we go extreme in the other direction. <laughs> I'm like, I am really angry right now. Like just this morning we were driving to schools. Some few things happened and we were running late. And I was cool, calm, collected until I wasn't. And then I'm driving and I was just, I was really trying to self-regulate was what I was doing. And she knows when this happens, she knows what I'm doing. And eventually I like start off, I was like, all right, I'm feeling better. I was like, there's just like such a knot in my belly. It's like nausea. Mm -hmm. She said, 
oh, now I feel it too. And I was like, that's what I'm working with over here right now. And she's like, oh, okay. Keep going. Like whatever you got to do. And it was just that, you know, it's not me like trying to paint over things that everything's like, it's just very raw and very real what our experience is. And um, yeah, I think it's just a new way of being like, it's, it's really culture change that we're talking about. It's normalizing the experience of difficult feelings and emotions, like the sharing of those developing a whole language. Like I love the relational practices, like authentic relating and transparent communication and uh, nonviolent communication was an early one. Like these tools are so beautiful and important because it's not enough to just be in touch with your feelings. There's also a whole you know, we're relational beings, we're social creatures. Like we have to sort of develop a way of communicating and relating around these things and saying like, I'm scared. Like, ah, here's a good one. This is one that I find very rarely gets communicated. I'm confused. I'm just like, wow. Like that, (laughs) if people began to recognize when they had conflict, around making a decision, what to do in a moment or what to say to someone, or like, I just can't cognate, I can't process what's happening right now. And I feel really confused. And the problem was to be confused was very scary for a lot of children. Like, Like the adults didn't have it together. So if I'm confused, I'm in danger. So I need to figure it out. <laughs> and so, you know, these are, this is what I'm, this is my passion is writing about teaching, sharing, creating space uh, and being in communities. Like people I work with most closely, like we have very good agreements around boundaries, (laughs) around honesty, around surfacing things. So they don't fester. Um, Like I I really feel like it's a radical culture shift and people who make the shift find it very difficult to go back to it's like the default world, right? Like all the time I teach classes or we go very deep in a cohort, like over 14 weeks or 12 weeks. And people will say like, I don't get this anywhere else in my life. Like not even my friends relate to me this way. You know, there's a transition period when you're learning these skills and you begin to be in communities where it's like, wow, this person really seems to have all the time in the world for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not used to that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like, it's so we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're really a transitional generation. Like we're moving through these awkwardness, this, these awkward places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to. I think it's going to be amazing. I'm really banking on a golden age. <laughs> I'm in the utopia camp. Perfect. Well, it's working. Um, what you just shared is the part that I, in my head, the flag that lives right there is labeled intimacy. Mm-hmm. It is a subtle awareness of what happened, what is happening in me that I can share. The sharing of what is real for me in real time through my words or my actions 
is intimacy. And as you share that you have a deeply intimate relationship with your daughter, mm. uh, tear comes up mm. because I had, oh, I just wish I had that. Mm. The, and what, what you go on to say that when you can help facilitate and educate people on how to do this and that they get to experience it with you and in the cohort, that they can never go back, it's almost like that turns the volume up on their relationships. And now they're like, wait, no, 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 no. Because the world where the external world is turned up to 11 drowns out the subtle relationships. It drowns out our subtle connection to our bodies and to each other. And once we turn that volume up, that's the music that we all want to listen to anyways. So the idea that through a subtle awareness of our embodiment, mm -hmm. which is so interesting, that's a new phrasing for me, an awareness of our embodiment. Mm -hmm. Up mm -hmm. until today, I've used embodiment as something we seek, mm -hmm. as if it was integrity but a subtle awareness of our embodiment mm -hmm. and then a transparent and real-time sharing of that awareness mm -hmm. that we can call intimacy creates a level of connection mm -hmm. that is radically corrective for our emotions, for our relationships, for our sense of self. And as we noted earlier, it is radically corrective of the meta crisis. It is radically corrective of the climate crisis. This, I think, is a pretty fucking legendary, <laughs> like, what a fucking realization. Oh, wait, yeah, we did the science, but we actually have to, like, feel the thing. And the feeling of the thing might actually just fix it. So maybe we, we need to like tune in, tune into what it feels like for that. Because I think that for most everyone, the idea of climate crisis is a numb spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not for the children. No, I agree. I agree. The adults, the, all the children that I know through my daughter and being a mom, they have a very, they still are in a very immediate and very emotional. Mm. They have a very immediate and emotional awareness of the situation. And that's intense as a parent. I know a lot of, but it's also really hopeful. Mm -hmm. It's really, really hopeful. Like I remember, I'll just share a quick story. I was working um, on, with the city of Miami on a project around sea level rise. And I was doing a bunch of embodied focus groups <laughs> um, in Miami to just like see how, the, how they could communicate better with the people about what was happening. Cause it just was like, like a lot of climate communication and uh anyway i was on the phone one day 
I was feeding my daughter and I got a call from the client and we were talking about the situation and she was reading a book. And so I had like half attention on her, but I was really in the conversation and I was saying something like, I mean, Miami is going to be underwater in like not much time. It's already, it already is actually. It, you know, I was just like really vehemently talking about the situation. And then I turned and looked towards her and she was holding the book, but she was crying. And I was like, oh God, I felt it. I was like, I gotta go. And, and it just was like, oh, I felt so bad. And I just didn't have the awareness that she was listening and taking in, like really taking in, like the person even on the other phone, we were just bet, 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 bet about the situation, but she was really scared and really feeling it. And I was like, that is the appropriate response actually. And so, was, and, and when you say you feel bad because you weren't aware that she was tuned in as much as she was, do you feel bad that, that you needed to be having that conversation in the other room? Or is that, I guess what I'm getting at, what are the, <laughs> what are the ethics here of alarming our children right, to this right. case? Because I remember when Greta Thunberg became mm -hmm. very big and I just like did a, you know, I looked up who this child was and she had been, you know, very outspoken and very powerful voice for climate change, but also had battled with OCD, mm -hmm. depression, and these, you know, this sense of panic excess, mm -hmm. uh, to experience humanity's problems so embodied is not what I wish for my children or the children of my neighborhood or your child either. So there is so I guess I'm I'm curious. What do you think is the ethic here? What? How do we? How Ooh, do we? Such a big question. I feel like that's is. another episode, right? <laughs> Maybe it's like how do we? How do we allow our children to feel the thing that is so real and not yeah. shelter them from it? But also, how do we guide them to feel it without being panic-stricken, overwhelmed? Well, there's an appropriateness, you know. I mean, I think in that moment, what I felt badly about was that because I had forgotten or lost her in my awareness, I was too adult. We were two adults talking mm -hmm. and we were a little, I mean, right or wrong. We were a little, we weren't in that moment doing a feeling exercise. We were sort of exchanging the information that needed to be exchanged, but um, it wasn't, it didn't include her. If I had been fully inclusive, like if I hadn't been including my daughter in that moment, I would have been talking about it very, very differently. So yeah, I don't think it's about pretending like it's not happening. Can you intuit for me the difference between how you said it and how you would have said it? Mm. Though what you said first was that you said, Miami's going to be underwater. Right. Right. Like, almost like these people don't get it. Like they're going to be underwater. Right. 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 So what would I have done if I had included her? It's so hard to go back there because it's all so circumstantial. You know, it's so in the moment what you're doing, 
I might've stepped out of the room. Mm -hmm. I might've, um, I don't think I would have, those words were designed to have an impact Mm -hmm. and they had an impact on her Mm -hmm. in a way I didn't intend. And that was it. So I don't know. I would have shaped it a little bit differently. Uh Yeah. I guess we can both just agree that this is a, to encourage our children to be sensitive and embodied, aware of their embodied experience is a scary proposition in the world that we currently live in. That is really well said. That is really, really, it's true, but it's also not because I have one of these embodied kids and I'll tell you what she has. She has a lot of certainty about her experience. Mm. She doesn't doubt the way I remember doubting reality or situations or people. There's very little suspicion. You really can't pull the wool over her eyes. She's very in touch and there's a confidence and a deep, it's grounding. There's a sense of security in the base that a lot of us were pulled up out of the base. I mean, this is where we start to get like literally into the subtle body, but she's here. Her feet are on the ground. She's in her center. Like she has all kinds of resources within herself to navigate this stuff. You know, I love her. (laughs) <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> They're intense though. These kids, I'm sure, you know, some of them too, like you can't, they don't yeah, really don't. have, they don't, they don't have the deference to authority, for example. Um, they, there are other things that go with that, that are really funny to be a parent of one of these children is very funny because all the time she's like, okay, mom, uh, you really need to get a grip here. It's not that bad look, here's what's happening. (laughs) It's a humbling experience. Yeah. I think that a lot of parents have likely experienced this without actually understanding it, the wisdom of children. Mm. (laughs) I think a lot of parents almost write it off as luck. You're like, ah, they just like, they learn words and they just like fucking stumbled across something wise. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a the lack of the how did Bonnie say it? The gatekeeper self. Before you have that gatekeeper self online, you are a conduit. Yeah. Yeah, there's some yeah. We could go really far down the rabbit hole of children and embodiment and wisdom. I think that's actually something I'm deeply interested in. Um, I found myself in my gateway to philosophy was through peaceful parenting. As I kind of looked back on my own childhood, I, I found peaceful parenting. A philosopher named Stefan Molyneux, who's been slandered off the internet, but a deep advocate for children. Hmm. I think though, what I just said that you loved was that the idea of raising a sensitive and embodied child in a world that has a volume turned up to 11 Mm -hmm. is a scary proposition. 
you agreed, but then you also remembered very quickly that your child has this incredible resilience mm-hmm. that is based on a certainty in her own experience, which struck me as beautiful and painful as I struggle to be confident in my own experience as a adult i've recently decided to end the intimate relationship that i've that i was in mm-hmm. and i have struggled with a confusion about my own experience and have had to bring myself back to my own experience through reading my journal just read your journal buddy you remember why you did that yeah so i think as we consider wrapping up here i would love to mm. hear the power mm. the resilience that comes with mm. learning to listen to and honor your own fucking experience <laughs> which is crazy that's so fucking counterculture that is the punkest fucking thing you could do in 2021 i swear to god which i've never seen someone wear such a cute little fucking turtleneck and be so punk <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny my mom sent me this sweater and it's just really cold in the cabin you know how it is well, it matches your fingernails perfectly. I'm cold, okay? Um, but yeah, no, I was just feeling, and I think this is a great place to end. Is um, This is uplifting. Okay, it is up. I mean, it's just so empowering. Like I, another way embodiment is key to the meta crisis is that truth, it has a resonance truth is a vibration. It is a form and you feel it in the body, Absolutely. right? You Absolutely. feel it in the body. I, and so I pity in this the people world, who haven't felt that. What's that? I pity the people who haven't felt that. I when know. Someone, I know when this someone is what says I'm... something you're like, whoa, that like feels incredibly true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people who get like one of my clients, she's like, well, I know that's true because I'm getting my truth tears. Uh-huh. Like she gets one tear from each eye, mm-hmm. but whatever goosebumps, like whatever you're like, there is like, we know truth in the body. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're constantly talking about like in a disembodied way, talking about the meaning crisis and like propaganda and like all the trouble that comes when people are poorly educated and ill-informed and even misled intentionally misled to believe things that are harmful like we've we've got a fracturing of reality unparalleled probably then like in in human experience and in my experience the only way to navigate that is to be in my body when I'm listening to talks on the internet, podcasts, when I am listening to teachers, there is, a, it's like one of my teachers, Thomas Hubel talks about like, it's as if it's like you're playing, somebody's playing the piano and it's beautiful and then dunk, 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 but they try to keep playing and you're like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. 
what just happened there? You know, and it's like, there is such a precision that we can acquire that we, this like a, this, this mastery Mm -hmm. of listening to the body and beginning to trust the body. And it really is something that you practice that you work on and you practice it by doing it. So this happened for me. And I know it's happened for a lot of people who begin to trust their intuition. Like there's a very awkward stage or period where you're doing things that don't really make any sense because it's like, all right, body, I am committing, like I'm building a relationship here. I have been ignoring you. I admit it, but I'm going to really try, like, I'm going to sit down and put some time and effort into this beautiful relationship that we can have. And you start listening and it's like, yeah, it's dinner time, but I really want some ice cream. You're like, do you? Okay, hold on. No, we need to be healthy. We got to eat something. You know, I'm being silly here with my example, but it's like for a while, it's like, all right, I guess I'm going to have ice cream for dinner. Like, I don't know. I just got to like do what my body wants. And um, so anyway, I guess all I'm saying is like, this is a tuning fork. It is. Right? Mm. Yeah, because Ayurveda is like, no, you should actually have your sweets before dinner, not after. Oh, really? You're like, oh, wow, maybe my body knew that. (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's because how Ayurveda learned it was listening to their bodies. Right. Ancient technologies, ancient yogic technologies. Mm. But I just like, I I really wish that for all people, this, this being centered in our own experience, like Mm -hmm. being authentically in our own experience, being able to share that, being able to hold other people's authentic experience, which might not be so agreeable. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to hear someone say, you know, I really just can't be in this dynamic right now. I love you, but it's too hard or whatever their experience is. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. It was harder for me to say it. I think it was harder for me to say it, but I want to tie this back to your. Now I'm embarrassed about my pink turtleneck. Stop. (laughs) Look, I got more of a punk rock black. I got my black t-shirt on underneath. There you go. Very punk rock of you. Um, And it did warm up, by the way. So, okay. No, you've you've acknowledged how the path to becoming more aware of your subtle body, its clues, its messages... It's a deepening, but then there's this part that in the real world seems awkward. But on the far side of this complexity, like the ease that's on the far side of the difficulty, I think is resilience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just being more human. It's really more natural, Mm. you know, back to, we can kind of bring it full circle back to Bonnie. It's like, um, you know, being more indigenous to earth, you know, being more at home here in our bodies. Like, you know, I just realized after many years of thinking I was embodied, I was like, oh, there is a subtle way I still don't want to be here. And that's what I'm going to work on. 
And so whatever my experience, like most of the time, even when it's awkward, a lot of people respond <laughs> in a room of 40 people. And I have been in this room many times. It's like two or three people are really freaked out by me or something that I share or bring to the space or something that I invite or something that happens that is extremely authentic to the, to the moment, to what's happening in the moment. And you know, the majority, some, some are neutral. And then a lot of people are like, oh my God, the authenticity. Yes, I was feeling that, but I wasn't going to say it. You know, these, these kinds of like, this is what I'm talking about. Like it's a culture change. Like it's a cultural revolution <laughs> that's underway. And on the other side of it is like so much bliss. Yeah. And I, as I, as I said it, I heard myself say it, that it was like, that it was resiliency and resiliency sounds like strength. Resilience sounds yeah. like some kind of improvement and it might not actually, might not actually be that. I think that maybe on the far side of it is actually just being more real. Yeah, exactly. Which is liberating. It is so liberating. <laughs> it's so liberating. And I don't mean real in like the woo woo way of like, oh, that person's like so real. No, like real in the way that like you get connected to your humanness, your place in the universe, your place on earth, your place kind in your of body. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So here's what's real. My daughter is getting home from school right now. She's about to run up the stairs and it what's will no name? longer be quiet. Eleanor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Send her my warmest regards. And um, thank you so much. This has been just absolutely awesome. Really awesome. It was so fun to talk to you and I really enjoyed illuminating so many of these points and um, and I really just love your experience, your physical embodied experience as an athlete is um, something I respect very much. Thank you. And I have some really, the most interesting thing that I actually wanted to tell you today, I didn't get to. So I would love to pick this okay. up again. All right. Cliffhanger. Okay, great. Thank Sounds you so much, good. Skylar. See you later. Yes, my pleasure. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm still reeling, buzzing from that. So good. Um, like I said, I'm going to link the Benita Roy talk in the description. I'm also going to link Skylar's Art of Emerging page, her website, and some links for her stuff. I'm so grateful that she came on. We are going to do this again. I'm sure we had such a blast. And thank you guys for listening. I hope that was so helpful. Please, if you like this podcast, consider supporting. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. You can support for as little as $5 a month. And I am giving my top tier patrons free coaching calls with me, which I take all of the wisdom that I've gleaned from all of these amazing guests. And I try to do my best version of empathic listening with you and then I reflect to you what I hear and then we try to through our dialogue between us glean the wisdom that we need out of ourselves okay it's my process so love you guys thanks so much for listening thank you Skylar uh, we will see you guys in the next episode <laughs> <laughs>